I don't know for you guys if you've ever taken one of those personality tests, but there's one in particular that they give, they make um, leaders take, and I've taken it multiple times, and I get the same thing every time. And in those tests, there's typically the, the, this, if you are in the DISC test, there is the person who is the high get it done person. The one who's like, I see the task in front of me, I want to get it done, and I'm going to get it done as quickly as possible, and I might bulldoze people in the way. Uh, I am not in that personality type group. Every time I have taken it, I'm the guy who slows the process down and asks why. Uh, and I get where my children ask the questions, because I ask the questions. Uh, but I am one who is always concerned about the why to everything we do. And I feel like sometimes, and, and that I, I believe that helps the person who is really trying to get the task done, because I think there are moments we forget why we're doing what we're doing. Whether it's important or not, we have to remember the motivation as to why we're doing these things. And so the reason we're doing this series together, the people of God, is because I think we forget why we do this. I think we forget why we come out of, get out of bed in the morning and yell at our children to get their shoes on and yell at them to get in the car and, and step on the dog because the dog did something it shouldn't have done and you're mad when you come in here. We forget why we do this. And so this morning, I, I hope that as we, we, re, we revisit, for some of you, the, the, the importance of worship, but for some of you, it may also be the, I didn't know that conversation. And, and, and really going, this is why we do these things, because I believe the why matters. I really do. And I hope that you believe that why matters as well, when we ask, and when we see the Lord ask us to worship. In both scenarios... You and I are going to see, with the worship, there's two sides to the coin, I think, in the conversation that many Christians are familiar with, but really just asking the Lord to show us. And so during this series, we're going to look at why, we do, why do we sing songs of faith? Why do we come together to, to hear God's Word? Why do we come together uh, and take a snack break in the middle of service and take bread and juice? Why do we do that? Why are we serving? And why is serving and giving so important in the life of a Christ follower? Why do we set people up over here to pray for us and, and to have a place to respond? Why do we open a space where you can physically move and go to these places? Why do we do those things? Because it matters. And so we'll be looking at that in the next several weeks. But this morning, really, rather than assuming that we understand worship, or why we do this, or why we sing songs of faith, or why we live a life of worship, I would just like to go through it with you. And so when, when you hear the word worship, what images come to mind? And I'm going to show you a couple on the screen. Does this, is this your, the image that comes to mind when you think of worship? It's the building. A church. Chances are, mo many of you probably had that thought. What about this one? Hands up. You're going to a, an event, maybe where you're going to go and sing with a whole lot of people, and there's some hands that comes to mind. What about this? Serving. I mean, I think in the, in the Christian world, I couldn't find a real picture of Jesus. I had to use, there was an artist rendering of Jesus. So, um, but yeah, Serving. Like, is that what comes to mind when you think of worship? Because in the Christian world, we have kind of gone, it's not about the, the singing, it's about the life. And so you kind of really start to go, okay, it is, it's about the life. And so maybe that comes to mind. What about this? Do Elvis fans come to mind? Do Elvis fans come to mind when you think of worship? What about Bieber fans? Do they come to mind at all? What about this guy right here, Ben Bryant? 
<laughs> Does this come to mind when you think of worship? It might. I don't, I don't know. What about this guy? This guy should have painted his entire body. <laughs> he should have, if he was going to have his photo taken and try and get attention, he should have at least painted everything, but he did not. So here's the thing. I show you those images simply because worship is not just a Christian thing. It's, it's a human thing. It's what we do with our lives and with our lips. We give value to the things that we love. And so with our lips and our lives, they're both affected by the thing that we value the most. That is a human condition, not just a Christian tradition. It's a human thing. We were wired that way. And so both with our lips and our lives, we are going to show that we value something supremely. Now, from the Christian perspective, I have heard two camps of battle. I have heard people say, well, in the Old Testament, God established a gathering, and that's where you were supposed to go. You went to the temple. You prepared yourself. You set yourself apart, and you went to the temple. And in the New Testament, Jesus establishes a new thing where it's all about your life. Well, here's the deal. That is not an accurate description of what's gone on. God has never suggested in part one of the Bible, go to a place to worship, and part two of the Bible, you can worship with your life. It's always, always, always been about my entire life. Old Testament, New Testament. Invitation to love God with everything we have all the time in all places has always been God's design for his people. The thing hasn't changed. So I don't see a battle between the Old Testament view and the New Testament view. It's actually the same thing. Jesus just introduces us to this way of faith, this life of faith that brings salvation. That's very different from the law. So when we look at this worship understanding, I hope that we're not just going to sit here and go, because I think the church has kind of fueled this idea, that it's all about, it, was, it was all about going to a place. Now it's all about your life. This is why we see so many people not seeing a need for the gathering. This is why we've got a generation of people who say, I don't need the gathering, it's just me and God. Because it's been about my life. But the reality is when we look at scripture, we see the gathering playing a vital role in the life of believers. And it's not just about a numbers thing. It's not just about building castles. It really is that God uses these tools to shape us in to the people of God. Like he uses these tools to shape us to be who he has set us apart to be by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so as a Christ follower, we value both and. We value the gathering and we value the life lived of worship. And since the psalmist, I believe, has a very good grip on what worship is, if you read the psalms, you read somebody who, who, who has written words that are used in the gathering, and so it prepares our hearts. But you also read the deep longing of the psalmist is to know the Lord. Not just in the good times, not just in the bad times, but at the end of the day, there's this subtle, quiet, bottom line foundation of faith in every area of his life. And so Psalm 29.2 says this, Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Now you and I, to give honor to somebody, and this is, this is the technical definition, is to actually by society standards, evaluate somebody. When we give honors to somebody, we are evaluating them. And typically, the human condition that eva evaluation is based on power, prestige, status, influence. You just label, name it what it is, but we will speak words of honor 
when somebody carries that position. And the word that honor, the word that we get honor from is the, the Hebrew word kabod. Say it. Say it. Kabod. It's like this throat thing where it's good. It's, you know, you get to say it. But, but it really, it literally, in the most literal sense, it means to give weight to someone. To put, to give them, uh, to throw weight on them or to make them heavier. Now, I, hold on before you go, but that doesn't make any sense. How do we do that? Here's how we do it. And we do it in normal life. It's not just a Christian thing. I want you to understand. It's a human thing. I played basketball in high school. And so what we would do is if we were in conversation about other basketball players, we had phrases for them. If they weren't that good, what we would say is that dude is weak. Or that dude is a scrub. All right? So we are actually lifting weight off of them. We're saying they aren't weighty. They have no game. They are not influential. They have no power on the court. They are actually weak. But when we're talking about someone who we respect, we would say that dude is a beast. We just physically made them heavier by turning them into a monster. So we give honor with our words just naturally. And so when we're giving honor, when we're saying these things about people, for, for, it's not just about the lip service, though. Because when I was looking, let's say I'm looking at Michael Jordan to, to model my game. Of course, you know, the highest bar you can possibly have. I should have aimed a little lower or something. But the point is, I would say Michael Jordan is a beast. My lips, I talk about him. But not just that. If I had Twitter and Facebook when I was high, in high school, I would have changed my profile picture to Michael Jordan. I would have, because I, I, I didn't just talk about him, but then I wanted his shoes. I wanted to know his workout routine. I wanted to know how he did what he did. I would study it. Not just am I giving lip service about Michael Jordan. I'm actually allowing Michael Jordan to affect and have authority over my life. Can you see that? When we honor somebody, it's not just about the lip service, but because of the weight that they carry, I actually allow them to have authority over my life. That's what's going on. So when I say honoring somebody or to worship the Lord, it, it, it's, it's not just a Christian thing. It's a human condition. It's what we actually do all the time. And so for us, this whole honor thing, this whole worship thing is about a declaration made with lips but it's in the declaration that is made with the lips that is a fuel for the life that God demands us to live as well. So the biblical understanding, this is the way things are in the scripture, is that there is one who is worthy of all worship. There is one who is worthy of all the weight. There is one who is worthy of all the honor, and that is creator God. And he invites his creation to see him that way. See, when we're, at, when, we're, when we're honoring the Lord, we're not actually honor, like adding to his majesty and fame. He's already completely majestic, completely powerful. We're just coming into agreement with what he says of himself. See, it's not like we can actually take away from his glory when we screw up. I think we think that as Christians. Like, man, when I screw up, I totally rob God of glory. No, he's already most glorious. He's already most weighty. But when we speak in response to the, to the invitation that he's given us, we're actually coming into agreement with the way God says he sees himself. But you and I are the ones who need that convincing. Our hearts and our affections and our souls and everything in us needs to be turned to look to God. 
needs to see him that way because that's what sin really is. Sin is us rejecting God's weightiness. Sin is us saying, God, you are not as weighty as you paint yourself to be. In fact, I'm weightier. That's really at the heart of it what sin is. It's saying, God, you're not most glorious. And I'm going to find something else that I think is. It's really it. So there's two things going on. It's not just a rejection of God's weightiness, but it's believing that something else is weightier. And in the garden, we see Adam and Eve getting to experience the weightiness of God. First time Adam wakes up, what does he see? God. The glory of God, like boom, right there, eyes open, boom, what? This is crazy. Seeing that God is who he says he is, Adam lived in that. And then when God put Adam to sleep, the second time Adam wakes up, what does he see? Boom! God's creation! You are amazing, God! He sees Eve. He's like, God's given, God, God made me, and I'm sitting with my creator, and then he gives me this gift, and this is amazing, and then he gives me responsibility, and I have all of these things, and everything that I need. He is experiencing the full weight of God in the garden. To know him, to walk with him, to have relationship with him, to experience that he has everything he needs pretty easy for him to say, God, you are worthy of everything. I'm so glad that you are in charge and I am not. But we know the rest of the story, right? We know that there was one who was not content with being the, be, giving God the glory due to him. In fact, he wanted the glory. He didn't want to be near God. He actually just wanted to be God. And God was like, that's not going to fly in my kingdom. You're done. And so Lucifer and all of his angels that were with him, that sided with him with this idea that they could be greater than that, that God could, he just chucked them out of heaven. And as Satan struggles, now we struggle. Because what did the enemy do with Adam and Eve? He questioned the weightiness of God, didn't he? He questioned the worthiness of the worship of God, didn't he? He said, God is not worthy of our worship. In fact, you're missing out. You need to be weightier. You need to see yourself as weightier in the mix. And it was a temptation too great for us to reject and now you and I find ourselves in the exact same worship struggle today. It's no different from the fall in the garden. You and I are walking with the very same struggle today. And this is why you and I need the gathering. This is why I'm going to say it's both and. It's not either or. Psalm 100 says, has a huge declaration and truly, 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 Psalm 100 and, and all of these scriptures that we see proclaiming God go to war on our behalf, helping us to not have the inflated view of self that we are so tempted to walk with. Psalm 100 says this, Shout with joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him singing with joy. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us. You did not make yourself. And we are his. He's purchased us. He's rescued. We are his people. The sheep of his pasture. 
Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Go into his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good. His unfailing love continues forever. I can guarantee you there's some of you in this room who have questioned God's unending love this week. You've, maybe you've fallen and you've just caved and you see yourself as unlovable, but coming to a place where you hear that the lies that the enemy speaks, that you cannot be loved, are crushed with the power of Scripture. That no, nothing can stop his unfailing love for me. His faithfulness continues to each generation, meaning it's never going to stop. These are the declarations. Some of you in this room, maybe you've never heard that, and you're like, oh, well, if that's true, then something needs to change. And some of you in this room are like, oh, yeah, that's right, I forgot about his faithful love enduring to all generations. See, working in student ministry for as many years as I have, one of the things I used to hate hate, hate about youth conferences is the band always thought it was their job to get the kids stirred up and going crazy. And so the question that the band would ask, they'd yell from the stage, how you feeling? Right? You know, and, and I would be like, awful. I just spent 12 hours in vans with middle school and high school students trying to get everybody checked in. Kids fighting over this X, Y, and Z and getting mad at each other. How are you feeling? Terrible. How are you feeling? I am a wretch. How are you feeling? I wanted to punch a middle school child. Just to be honest. See, the thing is, when we come to the gathering, when we get to a place where we are in this, this time together, I don't want you to ask me how I'm feeling. Some of you this morning, if I was to ask you how you were feeling, you'd be like, not good. Not good. I'm not against emotions, but I am very aware of my fickle heart and how dumb I can actually be. Because I have a struggle getting out the door in the morning, I can question God's love for me. Because I get into the city of Asheville and there's no parking, I can question God's love for me. This is how we work. This is how our emotions drive us and cause us to go, well, I didn't get a close parking spot. I'm going to have to pay a dollar. God must not love me. It means we need the gathering. We must be reminded. And so rather than asking me how I feel, just start telling me what's true. Rather than asking me how I feel, because that's not what's most important in these moments, what is true becomes most important. And it's what shapes us, it's what changes us, it's what stirs us. Our affections go, oh yeah, lack of parking is not a determining factor for God's love for me. Because it was difficult to get out of the house this morning and emotionally I'm checked out does not determine God's love for me. And so when we gather, we are reminded of what is true, not how we're feeling, firstly. This is why you and I, we sing songs, we pray prayers, we read scriptures, we fix our eyes on the hearts of the greatness of God. See, I know that you and I, when we come to church, we feel like it's our time to tell God what we're going to do for Him. That's what we think church is about. The reality is, Chances are we're going to bust our commitments to him. But when we gather, we're reminded of his faithfulness to us. 
We're reminded of the commitments he has made to us in Christ Jesus. And that stirs us to go, Lord, if that's true, I'm yours. And I'm yours regardless of how I feel, regardless of what circumstances say, regardless of what the world tells me, I am yours. And so if I can have a, 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 a very fatherly moment with you in this moment, when the band strikes up on a Sunday morning, it's not a time to talk louder. When they strike the first chord or when they get ready to call us to worship, that's not your cue to talk over the band to see how everyone's feeling. You and I are a part of the worship of God in this time. It's not that we are going to go, we're waiting for the meat of the service. It's all meat. Every part of it. it again, the vegetarian equal to meat. I don't know, whatever, carrots. It's all carrots. Whatever. Every part of it. That's why we don't say from the stage that, you know, we're going to stop our worship and have communion and take offering. It's all meat, veggies, whatever. It's all crucial in the life of the gathering. It's all worship. It's all reminders to us of who God is and what he has done in Christ Jesus. Singing these songs, it's not something we skip. I'll get to the other parts. It's all valuable in the time that we gather because in each of those moments, God is speaking to us of his faithfulness and what Christ has done. It's in these gatherings that our idols that are hidden deep in our hearts are revealed. And it's not just that sin is revealed because sin is revealed when the power of God is revealed. So it's not that we just go to war against our idols. We actually see God more accurately for who he is and what he has done. God doesn't just say to give honor to him. The scriptures are a picture of how big he really is, what he has done, and what he is going to do. This stirs our affections. In Psalm 29, you know, I read, give honor to the Lord, worship him in his holiness. And it's not that the Lord just goes, hey, do that. He actually shows us why he's worthy of it. And in Psalm 29, starting in verse 3, this thunderstorm speaks of the glory of God. I've never had a thunderstorm speak about how awesome I am. Never. I doubt you have either. But in verse 3, listen. The voice of the Lord echoes above the sea. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty sea. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. I think it has to be very powerful for us to be able to hear him. The voice of the Lord splits the mighty cedars. The Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon's mountains skip like a calf. He makes Mount Hermon leap like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with bolts of lightning. The voice of the Lord makes, with bar makes the barren wilderness quake. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists mighty oaks and strips the forests bare. In his temple, everyone shouts, Glory! The Lord rules over the floodwaters. The Lord reigns as king forever. Listen to verse 11. The Lord gives his people 
strength. The same Lord who does all of these things prior to what we just read. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses them with peace. Only one powerful enough to shake the earth at his voice can give people peace. And see, you and I are tempted to believe that the idols of this world will give us peace, when in reality, very different results for coming to idols. In fact, they're life-taking. They are peace-stealing. So when we gather, we're reminded not only of the faultiness of the idols that we seek, but we're reminded of the faithfulness and the power of God. You and I need the gathering to see this happen. The scripture captures for us the power of God. We both sing the scriptures, we pray the scriptures, we hear from the scriptures, we respond to the scriptures. The Lord uses these moments to shape his people. Now, the story that really we see played out in the Old Testament is that of God making a way when there was no way. The Israelites were constantly reminded by God that when there was no way, he made a way. And I am super, I love March Madness. March is the hardest time to write sermons for me because there's games on at all hours. But there was a high school game last week that I guarantee you that these boys will be talking about for the rest of their lives. You have to watch this clip. Any high school athlete playing for a state championship and today six boys basketball teams have the chance to etch their name in the record books and claim a little piece of hoops immortality a classic between Burrowville and Cherahoe for the D3 title what a finish Burrowville down one final seconds when Jared Cabral pulls up drains the jumper Broncos up 59-58 last chance for Cherahoe four seconds left the ball is picked off by Dominic Esposito he throws the ball high into the air Burrowville thinks they've won not so fast Nathan Morin of Charo actually caught the ball, called timeout with time still on the clock. Meanwhile, Burrowville thinks they've won. They're dogpiling, but you can see the refs get together, confirm, still one second left. So here we go. Charo down one, second to go. Jacob Beauregard makes the pass of his lifetime to Tom Longoluco at the rim. Can you believe it? Charo stuns Burrowville 60-59. Unbelievable. You think those guys are going to talk about that game for the rest of their life? Where there was no way, somehow, this is what you and I are invited into. This is what the Israelites were made, they, cre- they were speaking this stuff to their children. This is what God would tell them. Look, when there was no way, there was no reason for you to hope, but there no- was nothing you could do, I stepped in. And this is the story God says, You need to tell your kids these stories. They're going to forget. They're not going to have experienced it firsthand. And just because they didn't experience it firsthand doesn't mean it didn't happen. I want you to tell these stories. Where there was no way, God made a way. Repeatedly, God shows himself as most powerful, most valuable, and most worthy of worship in the scriptures. And the people, they kind of go, yeah, you're right. There is nothing that can compare with your greatness. There's nothing that can compare with your blessing. There's nothing, oh wait, except for that shiny thing. This shiny thing might be able to compare to your greatness, to your worth, to your, oh, and this shiny thing too. And this, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and this thing, and you see the pattern of the people of Israel. 
They just continually hand themselves over to other things, and that's, that's what we talk about as idol worship. It's where your heart goes, hey, look at that shiny thing. I think I want that. I'm going to do everything I can to get to that, and that's what sin does. But there's a bigger problem than them just refusing to worship God, because there's something that happens, and this is a result of us worshiping God, is Israel began to reflect the idols they served. And for the Christ follower and for the church, this should be to us a huge warning. Because when Israel began to worship these other things, they began to reflect these things. They became harsh in word and in deed to each other and those around them. They began to do things like oppress the poor and the foreigners. They began to cheat the widows. They began to ignore the orphans. Do you know why they would do those things? Because they worshiped themselves. And when you worship yourself, everyone else takes a back seat. And the people that God cared for the most, the widows, the orphans, the poor, the foreigner, were neglected and pushed to the side as a result of reflecting these self-made idols. Choosing the worship of self results in the rewards of self-worship. I've heard it said, and I'm not even sure who said it. I'm just going to credit it to Tim Keller because he says everything. But he said, and I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure, he said the worst thing that God can do to you and I, the worst thing that he can do to you and I is to give us what we want if it's not him. Do you hear that? The worst thing that God can do to you and I is to give us what we want if it's not Him. I believe that. I've seen it in my own life. I've seen it in the way I live. I've seen it in my attitude. I've seen it. I've just seen it played out. And I think many of you could agree with that statement. You see, hell is disastrous on every level. It's a place that was set aside for Satan and his rebellious angels, yet as Satan fell, so did we. Rebellion against God, rejection of God, and we stand in that same place today. We choose to worship the things and stuff this side of eternity, and I want you to know that should we choose to worship those things this side of eternity, we'll get the rewards. We will reap the benefits of worshiping those things this side of eternity on that side of eternity. And unfortunately, it is not the paradise, it is not the heaven that God has promised. See, the thing about hell, the, the, the problem with it that I think we, we wrestle with is that somehow, in the end, everybody gets in. And the reality is, you're wanting God to force you to do something there that you don't want Him to do here. And this is a problem. Because for us, if we didn't want Him here, why would we want Him there? And the true reward of the Christ follower is not heaven, is not paradise, it's Him. That's what we want. And the problem of hell is that we will acknowledge those who choose to worship this side of eternity themselves and everything else. We will in eternity acknowledge that God is God, but it'll be a matter of fact. It will not be a heart joy leaping and rejoicing that God is who He is in eternity. This is the problem with us assuming that everything turns out all right. You and I struggle with a worship issue. 
We struggle with giving weight and honor to the things of this world rather than in the, the Creator's invitation to worship Him alone. We worship created things. And not only do they destroy here, they destroy in eternity. Separation from Him, not getting to be with Him. We didn't want it here, we won't get it there. But we want it here, we'll get it there. And I know we don't like to talk about this stuff. I know we don't like to address these things. I know we don't like to think this way or that. But the reality is Scripture paints us a picture of what we worship. And it matters. And God being ultimately valuable, completely, totally, 100% worthy of all of our worship. Not just because of what He says, but because of what He did. See, for you and I, this worship condition, God didn't just wipe His hands of us. He did something not just to declare of His greatness, but He showed us His greatness. This gap between us was not something He took lightly. Instead, He showed us more of His value, more of His worth, and ultimately more of His love. Even in our choice to worship and honor and value other things, instead of seeing God as most glorious, God still loved us. He did what we could not. He, did, he not only made a way back to Him, but the way He did it would cause us to understand and see Him as most glorious and worthy of praise. Romans chapter 5 says it this way, When we were utterly helpless, I love that phrase because it does not give us a foot to stand on. In fact, it tells us we have no feet to stand on. You and I have both felt moments in our life when we have felt completely and utterly helpless. This is our position when it comes to sin. Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. So maybe if the person's done a couple of good things, they're worth dying for. Maybe if they're noble, maybe if they're upright, but you and I both... We don't see ourselves that way when we're honest, do we? Verse 8, But God, there's those two words again. But God showed His great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Do you understand that in the middle of your idol worship, Jesus didn't look and go, Well, that dude's worshiping idols. I don't think I'm going to die for him. It was in the midst of our idol worship that Jesus said, I have to die for him. I must lay my life down for her. She has no power. He has no power over the idols that have held their hearts for so long. I will make a way where there was no way. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of His Son while we were still His enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of His Son. So now we can, there's this word, rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Now as the band comes and we spend time declaring of His goodness, of His worth, of His value. We sing because of the gospel. 
We pray because of the gospel. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is why we do what we do. When we come together, we're reminded of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We speak of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We listen and have sung over us. If all I can do is stand there in silence and just hear the people of God singing of Christ's faithfulness, that's all I can do. If I don't know the words, it's not that I'm joining in on some large group karaoke sing song. It's these become my prayers. And as I've learned through many years of coming in frustrated, hurt, doubtful, cynical, all of those things, we, what we learn to do with those lyrics on the screen is we praise until the worship comes. We use our lips to declare of God's faithfulness until our brain and our heart join into agreement and go, actually, this is true. And it's fueling me to walk out that door and live under the authority that I just sang about. This is why we need the gathering. It is not some weak moment of people just getting together, doing nothing, going through motions. It's actually going to war against our small view of God and our large view of our idols. There's a shifting that has to happen where the idols have less power and more and more is handed over to God saying, no, you, you not only spoke of your greatness, but you showed us your greatness. Worship in the gathering allows us to see, hear, and speak of the power of God, the beauty of God. And in the gathering, those broken things that we're chasing seem less valuable and he seems more. And it fuels the lives that we go and live. And so Psalm 29.2, one more time, says, Honor the Lord for the glory of his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. This is our cry. This is our longing. This is our desire. Because he has shown himself faithful on the cross. So this morning, we're going to close with worship. And... Um, I asked Nate to kind of just share from his perspective um, what is going on as this band prepares, as they pick out songs, as they lead us on a Sunday morning, and so that you can hear from him. But the, but the invitation is the same. And as the, as the band starts to play, you are free to sit. You are free to stand. You are free to raise your hands. You are free to pray. You are free to come and use a space that you need to move to. There's cross in the corner. There's people who will stand over here and receive you to pray for you. But there are times in our life where we just need to respond to his faithfulness. And sometimes that involves moving. <laughs> but sometimes it involves just sitting still before him. And so as Nate shares, and as we sing, my, my prayer has always been that this gathering would truly be an encountering place for, his, for God and his people. And I know that's the prayer of many who help with whatever goes on here in this space. So will we respond to him this morning? Lord, thank you for loving us. And I ask that in these moments, your name would be lifted high. In Jesus' name.